Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man mean you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It's just about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And so, and so I stop by here tonight to ask, is there a heart in this house? The heart of our democracy is on the line this November and beyond. Now, my friends, they tell me that when the heart is in danger, somebody has to call an emergency code. And somebody with a good heart will bring a defibrillator to work on a bad heart. Because it's possible to shock a bad heart and revive the pulse. In this season, when some want to harden and stop the heart of our democracy, We are being called, like our foremothers and fathers, to be the moral defibrillators of our time. We must shock this nation with the power of love. We must shock this nation with the power of mercy. We must shock this nation 
and fight for justice for all. Where's my God and where's my money? Unreal values a crass distortion. Unwed mothers need abortion. Kind of brings to my old young king touch. He did it now. Trying to make it real compared to what... Building either a new party or a new movement that can hold the Democratic Party accountable or provide a meaningful alternative. Um, but I could not be more thrilled um, with the movement that is arising um, all over this country to support the creation of a real democracy in the United States. Um, you know, I think Bernie Sanders is absolutely right to call for a political revolution. Uh, we don't have a real democracy today. Our politicians are, you know, pretending to serve two masters, the people who elect them and then the people who fund them. And then Clinton be selected as the nominee of the Democratic I wake up every morning in a house that was built by slaves. Soy Americana. He's trying to tell us he cares about the middle class. Give me a break. That's a bunch of malarkey. This race is going to be won on the ground. And it's going to be won in Colorado and in Iowa and North Carolina and Michigan and Florida and Pennsylvania. And then we're going to the White House. Yeah! We have important work ahead of us. Work that will determine the future of our country. Are you ready? put the biggest crack in that glass ceiling yet. Thanks to you and to everyone who's fought so hard to make this possible. And if there are any little girls out there who stayed up late to watch, let me just say, I may become the first woman president, but one of you is next. Thank you all. I can't wait to I think the vote can only be used as a tool of organization. We can only use the vote to organize our people. Now, to really believe that we can put someone in office and that these people would be responsive to our needs, it's naive, politically naive. Because even if one of the black candidates who ran for office were to take the office of president, then black people must be prepared to fight against that person. Why? Because, you see, the system mandates the action of the individual. The individual does not determine how this country will function. This country works off the military-industrial complex, which means that it's profitable to wage war. And unless you, you know, devise another plan, another scheme to sustain, uh, to boost this economy, then it's going to be necessary to wage war, whether, you know, a black individual is in, is in office or a white individual is in office. Well, we're talking about a complete uh, a change in... Everything just highly probable, and unfortunately, so is the outcome. And while, to this day, we stand by the decisions, the legal theories, the charges and assertions set forth in the statement of probable cause, and during these proceedings, 
As officers of the court, we must respect the verdict rendered by the judge regarding the ultimate culpability of the adjudicated officers involving Freddie Gray's death as final, no matter how much we may disagree with this rule. We do not believe that Freddie Gray killed himself. We stand by the medical examiner's determination that Freddie Gray's death was a homicide. However, after much thought and prayer, it has become clear to me that without being able to work with an independent investigatory agency from the very start, without having a say in the election of whether our cases proceed in front of a judge or a jury, without communal oversight of policing in this community, without real substantive reform to the current criminal justice system, we could try this case a hundred times in cases just like it, and we would still end up with the same result. Accordingly, I have decided not to proceed on the cases against Officer Garrett, Sergeant Alicia White, or to re-litigate the case against William Porter. As a mother, as a mother, the decision not to proceed on these trials, on the remaining trials, is agonizing. However, as a chief prosecutor elected by the citizens of Baltimore, I must consider the dismal likelihood of conviction at this point. The judicial economy is proceeding further, and the divisive impact that continue, continuing this prosecution could potentially have on our community. What I've ultimately learned throughout this arduous process is that although no small task, justice is always worth the price paid for its pursuit. Let's not get crazy. Can we please just vote now? You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I love the lie and lie the love. I'm hanging on with push and shove. Possession is the motivation that is hanging up. The goddamnation looks like we always end up in a rut. And now, Janice Gray. And we thank you for being with us here in the sanctuary where black truth reigns. We've had a tough week. I'm sure that you have, and we're glad to have you with us here tonight at our common ground. I am sure all week, You have had to bite your tongue and hold your lips and look like you're listening to all the people raving about how wonderful our first lady was because she told them that she lived in a house that slaves built. But you didn't tell them very much more about that. So all over the Internet, the white people are going, what the hell is she talking about? And then, of course, uh, We have to give it to him. He is the orator of all times in political power. President Barack Obama, he laid it out. He laid himself open, and he laid it out, and he won the Democrats for the Hill, the Hillary Clinton, that is. 
And we've got a show for you tonight that uh, we're going to be talking about all of those things. But in the background, I want to remind you, say their names. Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice, Jonathan Crawford, Eric Gardner, and it goes on and on and on. And in Baltimore, all six officers who were charged with the murder of, with the homicide of Freddie Gray are now no longer detained, charged, they are free to go on with their lives. And to help us in this conversation tonight, we have with us Pascal Robert. You know him. He's an Our Common Ground voice. He is part of the unfiltered, Our Common Ground unfiltered interlocutors. And he is a journalist, a legal scholar, a blogger who loves all things politics, sheer political independence. He is unafraid to say the most sacred cows of ideological orthodoxy from the left or the right and the one who enjoys global affairs and aspects of pop culture. In all ways, he is a child of the Haitian Revolution. He has been known for years on the Internet, in the Internet online world as the Thought Merchant. He is a writer for the Black Agenda Report, and since 2007, he has been recognized for his hard-hitting, blunt, unvarnished style of bringing attention to current events and global affairs. And it is only fitting that this graduate of Boston University Law School joins us tonight to talk about what the hell <laughs> and we really mean that. Pascal Robert, thank you very much for blessing our microphone. It's so good to have you back. I have missed you. Have you really? I, I appreciate the uh, I really the, have. The, okay, well thank you for very much for the uh kind introduction. I appreciated that. I didn't I didn't expect that, but uh thank you very much. I, I you didn't look forward to it. it. Well, no, I, you you, have, I mean, sometimes... I have such great respect for your voice, for your mind, for the ways I in which you break things down. I, I really appreciate that. I always appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. I think you do a valuable service to the community that people do not recognize in its importance, and uh, I hope that you continue in that endeavor. I think the work you do is well, very important. Well, I was hoping that I could work you into this seat. See, that's what I was hoping. Oh, is that the plan? Oh, really? Wow. Okay. <laughs> I, I was hoping that one of the reasons that I put together the interlocutors is because there are five days of the week, and each one of you should have your own spot on our common ground every day of the week because, you know, it's time for me to – I've been trying to t- pass the torch for almost ten years on these microphones. But before wow. we get started, Pascal, I do want to talk to you about you're you're a man that I I deeply respect, and I had a need to talk to uh, a man today, um, and I haven't had an opportunity to talk to a man today because today would have been the 110th 
birthday of my dad. Oh, and wow, I'm going to tell amazing. my audience a little about my dad. I I don't talk too much about my except for my grand joys. I do talk about them because I can't stop talking about them. But my father was a graduate of Florida A&M College and went on to Morehouse College to get a master's degree in um, education. And he left Morehouse and went to Howard University Law School. He is um, brother of Alpha Cap, uh, Alpha 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 Alpha. Oh God! And he was just a wonderful person. And last night, I wrote this long post in Facebook about my dad, about. Uh, how he loved to go to Flamingo Park in Miami and how he smoked his Cubanas and how he taught me all this stuff about liquors and uh, alcohol, how he was so, he knew so much about so many things. Um, And I really had that push to really write about him. And something happened between me writing all of this stuff I mean, I was really writing, writing a lot of stuff, more more stuff than, than I write. You know, one of the reasons that I don't do a lot of writing is because I write so much as a part of my day job. And my fingers, by the time I get a chance to relax, my fingers really hurt from all of the keyboarding that I do. I mean, I literally write two- and three-hundred-page briefs as part of my work. So um, by the time I finish all of that, my hands really hurt, and I think I have arthritis. I've been on this keyboard and a typewriter for so many years. But anyway, and then it disappeared. The whole damn thing just disappeared, bloop, right into Facebook universe somewhere. And while I loved what I had written and I had actually spent some time editing, I I couldn't do it again. But I do want to say my dad was one. It is so wonderful to grow up with someone who loves you past the moon and themselves. And one of the things that that kind of love does for children is to give them a sense that they are problem solvers. Because everybody has problems, but you are, when someone believes in you, you begin to believe you can solve the problems. And I love that gift that he gave me. And he gave me a lot of stuff. Like, he would come home and I would say, hey, Daddy, where you been? Um, and he would say, why? Why, you, why do you ask me the question where I've been? You need to be asking yourself the question where you have been today. <laughs> you know, so he just like dropped a lot of crumbs, like he was paving, showing me the way, and uh, it was just so wonderful to have him as a dad. And I just wanted to pause for a minute and 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 say that although I had to share him with a lot of children in my community, and I had to share him with a lot of children in my family, that today on his birthday he is my daddy. So, thank you for letting me share that. <laughs> I'm a sharing sister tonight. 
That was be- that was a beautiful memory, and uh, we've talked. I remember when Father's Day passed uh, this year, earlier uh, a few months, a couple of last month, as a matter of fact, and I had called you, and my father had passed away. He had been de- dead for 15 years, but I was for some reason very much overcome with emotion, in having remembered him that day, and I actually cried that day, uh, thinking about my dad who had been dead for 15 years, and it was shocking to me. I was like, why am I feeling all these emotions? And uh, I remember calling you, and we ended up having a very long conversation talking about our fathers and fatherhood mm-hmm. and the concept of the importance of black fatherhood, which is something, you know, though I don't have children, it's because I had the kind of father that I did, I take it very seriously. And I think that it's something that um, it's, it, it's really not appreciated and really discussed, the, the, the role. You know, we, there's always a conversation about the lack of, of the black father or the the uh, the uh, the uh, missing black father or the you know the defective black father but there's not enough of a conversation about uh those men who have uh, weathered the storm and and fathered children in our communities and the role that they played and what they had to overcome and what they had to deal with you know your mm-hmm. dad living during Jim Crow you know being blessed to be a professional but still having to deal with the reality of living in West Palm Beach, Florida, and being, you know, a man at the center of his community and seeing poor black people around him and having to be a kind of leader of those those kind of folk and and uh and you know, walking with kings, no lose the common losing the common touch. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. as Rudyard Kipling said. And um that's 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 important and it, it, it does not surprise me that the kind of uh education that he imparted on you has had you grow to be the kind of woman that you are that is so centered in the community, so centered in service, so centered in challenging oppression. I mean, I've, I, obviously, I did not meet your father, but I can see that the the seeds that he planted in you have manifested in the kind of woman that you became. And to me, that's an indication of the kind of man that he was. So uh, that's a, it's a perfect example of how black fatherhood matters. It matters greatly, and uh, yes, I think that does. we should spend more time uh, appreciating it and celebrating it than trying to, uh, you know, act as if it's some kind of impossibility or, or insignificant thing. Mm-hmm. My father was a very joyful person, and I think that one of the reasons this year on his birthday uh, I miss him so much is because there are two people who stand out, Um, well, three people, Nelson Mandela, Barack Obama, and William Barber. When Reverend Barber Barber was speaking at the Democratic National uh, Convention on Thursday night, I was thinking about my deceased parents and how proud they would have been of some of the things that were, I have a problem. My father was proud of black men who achieved. Um, he would have been proud of you. He would have been sin. That boy knows he can think up a storm. <laughs> he, he just, I mean, he he would be so proud of Barack Obama. And that generation had reason to overlook so much 
of what we talk about and how we analyze it to understand what it meant to have him as a symbol. And I and I do have to say, uh, from all the reports that I have, Barack Obama is a very good example for uh, for for young fathers. Well, he's not a young father, but for fathers in this country. So you 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 really want to get in my crosshairs tonight, don't you, Janice? I know, really I know, I know, I know, I know. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm just saying that there that every generation has some kind of aspiration. When I was a senior executive at Wang Laboratories, which was a a Fortune 500 company at the time, um, the CEO and founder of the company, uh, when my dad was, I think I told you the story, when my dad was um, visiting, invited me to bring my dad uh, to our headquarters uh, to have lunch in the executive dining room, and to have a tour of the properties that the company owned and the property and the co- company was building. And when we went up to the heliport to uh, take this helicopter ride around the the properties, and this was a huge company, and we had had lunch, and Dr. Wang had stopped by our table and greeted my dad and invited him to his office, and and then we went on this helicopter ride. And we were waiting for the helicopter to arrive, and my dad didn't say very much on the elevator ride up, and we got on the heliport, and we were wait, and we were waiting in the waiting area, and he was very quiet, and he turned his face to me, and he had tears in his eyes. And he said to me, I am so very proud of you. And two years later, I lost him. So I think that that generation had a whole different kind of aspiration. They did not see the continued work of a Martin Luther King or or a Kwame Ture. They didn't understand the impact that the words of Zora Neale Hurston and 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 James Baldwin would have so their aspirations their understanding of symbols was different than our own <clears throat> do you get do you get what i'm saying i understand what you're saying uh i hope you're not expecting me to agree with all of it but i understand it i i, I understand <laughs> i'm just trying <laughs> I'm... to explain to y'all youngins Oh, no. <laughs> well, this is the. But let, me, let me tell you what the, the fundamental problem I have with your analysis, and I, know, I do not think that your analysis is incorrect, but I think that you are making a broad characterization about uh, a generation of black people that had much more sophisticated politics and a much more sophisticated understanding of itself relative to the power structure. Uh, I think that for men like your dad, professional, educated men, uh, organizational members, fraternity men, as those kind of men today, I mean, I never met your father, but you know, as a man who was in a black fraternity, who is an alpha, I've met many men like your dad. I was groomed by men like your father. And I, could, I do agree 
that men of that type would see a value in a Barack Obama. But that is because part of the actual reality of what men of the black upper middle class or the black elite aspire to is about validating their existence in the overall power structure of American society. And what but I'm see, saying I is not anything original. Far. I think you, you I, I think you go back too far. My father would never have characterized himself as part of the black elite. He would not have said, um, but, but, although but he was. Oh, exactly, although, although he, he was. was. I'm not, I'm not uh-huh. saying that this is a self, and my, my goal here is not to indict these individuals or to indict them. What I'm saying is that we have to realize that you see the world from where you are. And when you That's are in a certain position, right. you see the world from where you are. And when you have been the only, when you are, know that you're the, one of the only three black lawyers in the city of West Palm Beach, which is very possible during your dad's attorney. Four, exactly. When you know that, you know, when you tell a white person you're an attorney, he looks at you like, what? You're not a preacher or a teacher? You know, you know when, yeah. you, when you understand that, you know, you're dealing with white folk who are surprised that you can read. You know, when but, you're living in a world, you can, when you're living in a world like that, the ability to have someone and you can look at them as a symbol and say, look what he is. He's a black president. It's important, but it's important to you because part of that process is that it validates your personal struggle relative to that black president because he is a reflection of your position. And that is a reality. And let me give you an example of how I know this. In my own family, I remember one time, I think I told you this, we were having, uh, we were having Thanksgiving dinner, and I have... Uh, cousins, my mom, mater- cousins on my mother's side, my older cousins. They're two sisters. One of them uh, kind of works in the healthcare industry, but she's not really professional. She works in like, uh, you know, record like medical document recording. And her younger sister is college educated. She University of Miami graduate. She's AKA has a master's degree. Works very high in healthcare administration. Her husband is a Tuskegee graduate. Now my her, my my other cousin, her her sister is married to a brother who is a long time blue collar factory worker. So we're at Thanksgiving dinner and we're talking about politics again. And I'm leading the conversation, and I'm talking about Obama and his policies. And because these people are not really as used to engaging deeply in the president's policy. And I'm talking about things that he's done that they may not know. That for, for, for example, that he cut 8.7 billion billion dollars from from uh, uh, from, food, from food stamps. The fact that you know basically his sequester has definitely damaged a lot of subsidized housing and problems for the poor. You know, with things that he did to HBCUs. And my 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 cousin, who is the professional. All she can say is that it does not matter what he represents for us is more important. My other cousin, who was more of a kind of blue-collar worker, she was like, well, tell me about this. What does this mean? Her husband was interested in the TPP. Well, how is this going to affect unions? Her, but, the, but her sister, the one who's professional, was saying, that doesn't matter. It's all about what he represents for us. And I was very fascinated yeah. how within the same family, two siblings – who, because of obvious different career trajectories, were pretty in t- pretty much in two different classes. One was working class, and one was professional class. And how they were willing to engage with Barack Obama was a direct reflection of what their class positionality was. My cousin, who was married to a union worker, was very interested in what the TPP was going to do to union jobs. 
her, her sister, not so much. And what I'm saying, well, my, my you know, thought, I hear what your, your point. Your point is a good one, but I think it has some distinctions generationally that that have to be cut and examined, and well, also think, geographical. Well, my, the my, South my, made a difference. My, I think that this is my position. I think that that uh, the way in which uh, Thurgood Marshall or Charles Hamilton Houston would have looked at Barack Obama is different than, say, someone like an A. Philip Randolph who worked with the sleep with the uh, you know uh, you know the sleeping car workers, or who worked or or, or black communists of the early 20th century, or you know the uh, you know the African Blood Brotherhood, you know the black radical na- na- radical nationalists of the early 20th century, or someone like Hubert Harrison. I think that. It, it would not be a uniform kind of praise and oh my gosh we've got one of our own because listen if you read uh, Martin Luther King wrote a very very interesting uh, piece in 1967 it's called the Black Power Defined it's one of his least uh, cited speeches I don't even know if it was a speech or or, or, or writings but there's there's so many uh, gems of wisdom in that piece, the Black Power defined. That uh, it, it's to me, it, to me, it's a tragedy that more people don't talk about that. And in that piece, the Black Power defined. This is in 1967. This is you know Dr. King, who probably would be the contemporary of Dad. He does an assessment of black politicians, and and he talks about the black politicians that are basically ascending in his time and 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 uh what he is, what he what he thinks about them and he he's basically saying that these politicians are rising on the back of white finance and white money and that it is it is normal and correct for black people to be skeptical of them this is Martin Luther King, and he says mm-hmm. not only is it normal for for them to be skept, skeptical of these new politicians, but that they offer little in program and even less in substance. Mm-hmm. All right, mm-hmm. and 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 uh, and and one of the things too is that there were what what you are characterizing as the black elite in the South. Those men and women understood the fundamental of what we call now black misleadership. Yes, I mean, that's a very good point. That's yeah, they understood, they understood that they would have to carry their own. My dad was a uh, one of the founding members of a group called the Vanguards. And it was a group of not it was a group of black professional men. Um, men of means who met with community people to talk about what the community needed and how they could influence uh, economically, you know, for instance, the vanguards, um, 
always gave something like $2,000 every year to the segregated schools, the high school, the junior high school, and the two elementary schools in West Palm Beach so that they could have the textbooks that they needed. There was always some group, there was always some group uh, who fed and had a charity service for for field workers. So, you know, it, it, I think the ge- geographics made a difference. But now my audience is going to be thinking that I lured you here under false pretenses tonight. <laughs> so, no, I mean, if you it, would indulge me, I, I would need to talk about. I would, if you, I would like you to indulge me briefly because I actually want to read this quote from this speech, the, uh, the Black Power Defined. I have it right here. I pulled it up. This is, this is Martin Luther King in 1967, and we're talking about this in the context of would this generation, would your father's generation or the civil rights generation, would they be lauding Obama? Would they say what a wonderful representation? And I think that this speech, this, 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 these words are very crucial. I'm going to read them, and let me try to be as brief as possible. This is Martin Luther King in 1967. The majority of Negro political leaders do not ascend to prominence on the shoulders of mass support, although genuinely popular leaders are now emerging. Most are still selected by white leadership, elevated to position, supplied with resources, and inevitably subject to white control. The mass of Negroes nurtures a healthy suspicion towards this manufactured leader who spends little time in persuading them that he embodies personal integrity, commitment, and ability, and offers few programs and less service. Tragically, he is in too many respects not a fighter for a new life, but a figurehead of the old one. Now you tell me in the context of that those words, how can we how do we how, how can we say that Martin Luther King would just be sitting here gaga with Barack Obama and say, "Oh my God, our first black president"? I don't think that'd be the case. Well, did you catch um, our intro into the show tonight? I was listening to it. It was yes. it was H. Rap Brown who was talking about the black president if we got a black yes. president and what you it would have would to mean. fight him. Exactly. Yes, he said we would have to fight him, and you know, exactly. and of course, the, the the significant thing about that statement, and when when Gil Noble asked H. Rap Brown why, he said because the individual is a reflection of the system. The individual is irrelevant. It is naive to think that we could put one of our people in the position of the president and have him truly reflect our interests because the system dictates how you behave, and this system is built on the military-industrial complex. That means it is profitable to make war. Yes. Now, what, what I'm saying, what, that, the reason why that video was so important to me is that what happened to that sharp level of analysis that H. Rap Brown was making? What happened to the sharp analysis that Martin Luther King was making here that we had at one time in the black community about black politics? Where has that gone? And that's why I think that when we say that your dad, who was a brilliant man, would have been so enamored with the Obama phenomenon, I think we do a disservice to that generation because I believe they were more sophisticated than we realized. Well, keep in mind, I kept using the word symbol. That's true. When it got down to it, I, I kept using the word symbol. My father would have had, his pride would have been in seeing this, the charming side of the symbol. 
and what it meant to where he had been to where we are. Now, you and I would say, oh, yeah, when the nation's falling apart, they'll give it to a, to a black man. <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 and I, I know, it, it, you know, it is very easy to render my, my critiques as overly cynical. You know, I've been accused of that. No, but, uh, I, I, I don't think you're overly cynical. I think, you, I, I think you're acutely cynical. <laughs> I'll, I'll accept which that. means that you have thought through which means that you have thought through the position that you're that you take Absolutely. to be cynical and to be stupid and cynical is just emptiness but let's let's true. talk about uh, let's let's talk about this last week give us a summary pascal of you know my brain was kind of muddled by the images of the in the crowds i saw people i saw four people on tv that i know uh in different delegations uh i thought about shirley chisholm and the way in which black people particularly treated her candidacy even though the platform that she articulated was absolutely on point. Tell us, summarize for us what you think happened over this last week and and, and what all of the, you know, I've been calling them side chicks, and I don't do that out of disrespect. I do that out of understanding what that system that put together that convention and that platform and this candidate, what that is all about give us give us your sense of what happened well well i think the, the purpose of that uh, that democratic convention in, in philadelphia was multifaceted the first goal was to create the illusion of unity and consensus behind hillary clinton's uh candidacy uh at first many people thought they would not be able to do that effectively i think that they for the for the people who are watching the sh- the, the the spectacle on television I think that they were effectively able to do that. For those of us who are online, who are using using social media as a means to gather information, I think that we saw a much greater rupture in the, the Sanders faction and the Hillary Clapp faction that, than those who would have been watching on television. But if you were watching on television, they created a very good illusion of consensus behind Hillary Clinton. I think that was the, 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 one of their first goals. And I think they did that uh, with, you know, some smoke and mirrors, if you will. Uh, the next thing that they wanted to do is that they wanted to send a total rejection and refutation of Donald Trump and the message of Donald Trump and of the Republican Party's 2016 candidate. And the message of Donald Trump and the 2016 candidate that he is is that America is in crisis, uh, the best days are behind us, the empire is falling, we must sound the alarm, uh, we are, we are uh, basically, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the uh, apocalypse is upon us, is the kind of rhetoric that is being used by Trump, that we are in an abysmal state, that, you know, 
I, you need me to take us back to make, you know, the whole concept of make America great again. What was fascinating to me is that the Democratic Party, which traditionally has had the, uh, the perception of challenging American exceptionalism, because American exceptionalism does not necessarily include those who are left behind. The party that usually has been deemed the one to care about those left behind instead made American exceptionalism its motto and its mantra for this convention. This convention and a to mockery. me, yeah, this convention was basically. Ronald Reagan's a shining city on a hill, you know, blather that he said in the 80s for five days. This concept of, you know, I've never seen Democrats so, you know, you know God guns and country, I love America, apple pie uh, in my life. And I'm not saying, listen, you know, my particular philosophy and opinions about notions of patriotism might be different than others. You know, uh, I think that patriotism is a tool that the ruling class used to manipulate the masses, period. That's what, that's what the purpose of it is. Again, I know many people would think I'm cynical, but I, that, that's the fundamentally bottom line. Patriotism is a tool that the ruling class uses to manipulate the masses to get them in line with the agenda of empire, period. That's, that's, that's the way I look at it. So I'm not saying not to be patriotic, or, but I'm saying that it, 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 it has its purpose in a nation state, in a white settler colonial project that it is called America. Because this is what this is. Mm-hmm. This is a white settler colonial project that has become a nation state. And there's a whole history of what comes along to make that a reality. Mm-hmm. So to watch the Democratic Party, the same party that uh, the party of McGovern... <laughs> The you know the party of uh, you know of uh, Bobby Kennedy, the, the the party that in Chicago in '68 ruptured over Vietnam and civil rights and a few other things, you know the party of FDR, uh, to see them talk about America is great when we have the highest child black child poverty we've had, probably going back to the '60s if not earlier. America is great when we're having black men and women getting blown apart by cops on every corner in this country. You know, America doesn't have to be made great again. America is great when we literally have institutions, government and otherwise, educational, water systems being literally gutted by neoliberalism. We have whole cities like Flint, Michigan, where we have black children and white children drinking, you know, lead-based water. Okay? Infrastructure is crumbling all over the country. 51% of Americans making less than $30,000 a year. The greatest transfer of wealth to the 1% in the modern history of this country going back to the Gilded Age, while we basically have the highest uh, level of uh, the, the, uh, labor participate, the labor participation rate is the worst now it's been in 38 years, that which means that even though unemployment seems like it's getting better, we have to remember that unemployment does not count the people who have fallen out of the labor force. What the labor participation rate shows is what, what percentage of people are, percenting, are participating in the workforce. And those numbers have been abysmal. So this concept that America is great now 
in the age after eight years of austerity and neoliberal Clinton Obama new new Democrat politics is is offensive to me. It's a fundamental lie. America capitalism is in crisis all over the world. And for the Democrats to try to be pulling off this charade purely as a means to try to counter Trump's rather cartoonish but honest, cartoonish but honest statement that America is in crisis with this whole kind of yes, yes, you know, shining city on the hill rhetoric is offensive to me. And to me, it demonstrates how absolutely unwilling the Democratic Party is willing to be in the face of a potential Hillary Clinton presidency, unwilling to be the party of the poor, the working class, the, 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 union, the union worker, and those who have been the most affected in the most negative way by what this <laughs> stage of late capitalism is offering today. To me, what that convention tells me is that Clinton and her and her uh, glorified slave clasher vice president Tim Kaine, Citizen Kane, I call him, are going to go so far to the right to court disaffected uh, Trump Republicans that you won't even be able to recognize the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. That's what I gathered from now, this connection. I I noticed you you said one thing, and I I want to highlight it is that a possible Clinton presidency. The other thing that I'd like to hear you talk about um, and and help us sort through are the promises made through the deliverance of the Clinton candidacy to the black community by black people. Um, the Democratic National Com- Committee now is chaired by Donna Brazil. Yeah, but that was not planned. That was a that was a crisis crisis decision. Mhm. And it was a it, it it was a symbolic decision, and I think that it's a dangerous yes. decision because it creates the illusion yes. that the Democrats actually still care about black people. Listen, let me tell you mm-hmm. the most important thing that came out of that convention is the thing that unfortunately black people are talking about the least. The most important thing that came out of that convention is that Hillary Clinton picked Tim. Kane as a VP pick. Yes. Mm-hmm. Project Elite. We talked about that last week. Project, Project Exile. Exile. Right. On yeah. three different fronts. On three different fronts. Uh, Tim Kane represents politics that should not only sound an alarm amongst progressives, but they should sound an alarm definitely amongst black people. At least on two of those fronts. The first mm-hmm. front is mm-hmm. that when Tim Kane was mayor of Richmond. He was a major sponsor of a program called Project Exile, which was the the earliest attempts to take uh, gun possession with a felony conviction and make it a federal crime with a mandatory minimum of five to ten years. And before the rise of Project Exile, if you were an ex-convict and you got caught with a gun, not caught doing a crime, just caught with a gun – you would be have a, you would have a state charge, and depending on the circumstance, you may have the you know, the, the, the conviction mitigated, it may be dismissed. So there might be a process to that. Because of Tim Kaine 
and is a desire to uh you know deal with the the rising crime that was facing Richmond he he supported this project exile which not only took a state what a former state charge of gun possession for con- uh an ex-convict was and turned it into a federal crime so now you're doing federal time and you're getting at least 5 to 10 years and you're being shipped out of state that's why I call it Project Exile. Because as you know, once you mm-hmm. do federal time, you're not staying in the locality where you are. You can be shipped out exactly. to Kalamazoo, anywhere. And and don't forget that Virginia is one of the few states where in order to be a judge, you don't have to have a law degree. That's correct. That is correct. I mean, it was Virginia a federal judge in Richmond, Virginia, that convicted Kimba Smith to 24 and a half years without uh, parole, and I sat in the courtroom and watched him at 78 years old nod through most of the expert testimony about PTSD and domestic violence. Yeah, that's, that's not surprising. That's not surprising. Yeah. So, so that's, so, uh, that's on what, that what front. you have is Richmond, and Cain didn't change that or didn't even seek to change that or get rid of those judges when he became governor. I'm not surprised also, based on his po- based on his criminal justice, uh, justice posture. I'm not surprised. Yeah, he opposes legal abortion as well. Well, that, that was, uh, that's the is, thing. I was going to get there too. There, 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 there are other. There's a whole other set. We 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 just tackled the first set of concerns. The second set of concerns that I was going to tackle is that Tim Kaine is completely enamored and gaga with the bank, the banking, finance capital. Tim Kaine had the gall on the Monday before he was nominated to, to, to pen a letter saying that we need more bank deregulation, that we're being too hard on the banks, that we yeah. need to loosen up the reins on Wall Street. This is less than 10 years after finance capital literally caused the greatest economic crisis globally going back to the Great Depression that we still haven't recovered from. Hillary Clinton picks a VP candidate who literally says that we need to loosen the reins on finance capital even more. Which brings us to our confusion about who Elizabeth Warren is and how she can well, uh, support this ticket. Well, I, I think that Elizabeth Warren's uh, motivation for supporting uh, Hillary in the wake of uh, Bernie Sanders' kind of capitulation to the fact that she was going to be the nominee was I think she was audition. I think there were a lot of people who were auditioning for a VP. I think Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren was a logical pick. Cory Booker was being touted as a possible pick. Deval Patrick was being touted as a possible pick. Deval All Patrick of them ha- never. Naval Patrick was never uh, one that was going to be considered. Well, I, I'm not saying I, – I, I don't disagree with you. I'm not saying he was being considered. What I'm saying is that, that there was chatter they that he was him. in yeah, – yeah. Yes, that he was in the running, okay? So there was, you know, uh, uh, Julian Castro from uh, Texas. There was chatter about him. The belief was well. He had his da- he had his Dallas scandal, and oh, the yes. secretary well, well, Hutt. The, what was what was the what was the ideological equation that was being drawn up about who Hillary Clinton was? Speak Spanish. <laughs> well, it was it, it was no 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 before she before she picked Kane. What was the word amongst 
the, uh, the, 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 the observers of politics in the black community. The word was that because she's going to need minority turnout to be high, and she's going to need the fidelity of the Sanders wing and the, uh, and the, Ber- and the Bernie bus people or the, you know, the, the, the Sandernistas, whatever you want to call them, she's either going to have to pick someone black or brown or someone with progressive enough politics to keep the Sanders people in the loop. And she so people, and she did neither. She did neither. She picked someone who was Irish, Catholic, white, right wing on on crime, uh, totally in line with the banks and finance capital, and the most anti-choice on abortion. Democratic VP pick that I think I've seen in my 47 years on the planet. Yeah, this is who Hillary Clinton picked. And what so that let me ask says, you a question. Let me ask you a question about all of this. Who do we hold in the black political elite responsible for this? Oh, who we hold? We have to hold John Lewis, the Congressional Black Caucus, all of our petite bourgeois membership organizations that have been going to our black churches, telling black folk, "Come on, y'all, y'all gotta vote for Hillary." All of the, the we have to understand, and Janice, I know you know this because you're a sophisticated woman who understands how politics works in the black community. Is that the black misleadership class is not simply our elected officials who work at the behest of the ruling class to the detriment of the masses. The black misleadership class is the ideological superstructure, the echo chamber, the political echo chamber that exists within the black community that uses institutions like the black church, historically black colleges and universities, black fraternities and sororities, social organizations, the links, Freemasons, uh, uh, all these membership organizations, uh, uh, all of these institutions create an ideological echo chamber that reflect a politics that comes from the black upper middle class that is wedded to the Democratic Party, particularly for patronage, fat back and biscuits, if you will fat back in biscuits, that they are in bed with the Democratic Party, and from them, who are, who are right below the elected officials, they create an ideological superstructure or an echo chamber that basically sounds the alarm every four years, we got to get out for those Democrats. And there is a media branch to that black misleadership class. Black talk radio, black newspapers, uh, black star, Oprah Winfrey, uh, you know, Jay-Z. You know, the black misleadership class has a media component as well, a celebrity component. So all mm-hmm. of this, this whole ideological superstructure or echo chamber resonates in the, the psyche of black people to the point where there is not even an option to be considered when it comes to electoral politics. If you don't vote Democrat, something's wrong with you. What, you're not voting mm-hmm. for Hillary? What? You know? Well, the fu- the guess funniest... what has happened? What guess has happened? who's come on, who's creeping on in here, another interlocutor. Yvette Cornell, come on in. 
I'm good. How you doing? Thanks for joining us. Um, it's good to have you. I didn't expect you. you were going to join us to, to, tonight, but I am so glad to see you uh, because we're trying <laughs> to dissect this Democratic National Committee convention that went on, and um, and my question tonight is. Did they make any promises to to to, to pay and and did we uh, rack up any political debt going on in this in 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 that convention? No, I don't. I don't think they. Well, I, in fact, I know they didn't make any promises any promises to pay um, in terms of in terms of the Democratic National Convention. What they did was it was it was very curious to me. I was watching Barack Obama speak, and the most curious thing was. I thought about his the speech where he made his debut in terms of, you know, we're 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 not a blue American or red America, we're one America. And here you are and we're looking, you know, you know, at, at, at the possibility of Trump becoming president and you're making that very same speech that you made way back when. And it's 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 it, you know, it's it's not relevant and you've been president and that stuff is still not relevant and you're still saying it to us and you're still like evoking Reagan again in terms of his morning in America. And and for me, uh-huh. the, the the thing that the thing that struck me was how disillusioned you know this whole Democratic Party is because they keep saying, well, the Republicans were talking about the Republicans were talking about something that's ne- negative and it was very pessimistic, and it's like yes, people in America are leading very pessimistic, very bad lives right now. So really and truthfully, whether or not they're right or they're wrong, like they are speaking to people in terms of what people are feeling. You're not speaking to anything anybody, most people are feeling with this, with this, with this Reagan in America, you know, conservative rhetoric. Well, Pascal has been categorizing it as, as the great glitch show on the Hill, which is reminiscent of the, the Reagan proclamation. The, sh- the shining city on the Hill, the shining city on the Hill. Yep. We've got to take a break. Yvette Carnell has just joined us. She is an Our Common Ground unfiltered interlocutor and the editor of BreakingBrown.com. She's joining me with Pascal Robert of the Black Agenda Report. And I I just want to, when we come back, I want to talk about this a little bit more and this whole idea of what we gain from a president and how we ought to be looking at that in our in the season we're in the we're in the election season. Thank you for joining us and uh this is a clip uh that Pascal and I were talking about earlier. It was in our uh featured introduction coming into the show that I, I also want everyone to hear. Running for office. Elders Cleaver I think the vote can only be used as a tool of organization. We can only use the vote to organize our people. Now, to really believe that we can put someone in office and that these people would be responsive to our needs, it's naive, politically naive. Because even if one of the black candidates who ran for office was to take the office of president, then black people must be prepared to fight against that person. Why? Because, you see, the system mandates the action of the individual The individual does not determine how this country will function. This country works off the military-industrial complex, which means that it's profitable to wage war. And unless you, you know, devise another plan, another scheme to sustain, uh, to boost this economy, then it's going to be necessary to wage war. 
whether you know a black individual is in, is in office or a white individual is in office. Well, but we're talking about a complete uh, a change in. And that was H. Rap Rap Brown. We are you are listening to our common ground. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Pascal Robert will be driving the conversation about the promises that need to be paid in the political debt to black people who delivered the Democratic Party this week. I'm Janice Graham, and at the end of our show, at the close of our show tonight, we will be featuring the full remarks and preaching of Reverend William Barber, so you need to stay with us. speaks to her willingness to do whatever is politically expedient, no matter what that is. Because if she was genuine about the conversation, then we would actually have a conversation over why there is so much criticism from the black intellectual class, from the black left, from the uh, just black progressives. Why is there so much criticism of President Obama from the left? This is our common ground. Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned. Obama says we're not gonna have boots on the ground, but now you got over a thousand soldiers. You know why there's gonna be more? Because they're gonna start killing some of those that we've already pulled there now. Because if you can't get thirty thousand Shiites to stand their ground and they're fully armed against a thousand Sunnis and they drop their weapons, drop their uniforms. Drop their draws and run. What have you got? Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass. The Alpha Show. The Alpha Show. Fridays, 10 p.m. Just damn. Advanced political pushback. Talk radio on TruthWorks Network. Every Friday, he's all about politics. 10 p.m. TruthWorks Network. <laughs> no matter what, know your values. No matter what, know you matter. The I Declare Show, home of Real Law Right Now Talk Media. I Declare Show is where we deal with the difficult, real, raw, right now. The I Declare Show. Real Raw Right Now Talk Media, I Declare. The I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. I'm Janice Graham, and I declare it's real, raw, and right now. The I Declare Show with India Declare. Because she did it all night long while simultaneously wrapping herself in an Obama flag, right? Not even an American flag. She wrapped herself in the flag of Obama. It was Obama this, Obama that, and Obama so great, and Obama so – which is cool, right? You can love President Obama, but Hillary Clinton has not promoted President Obama like this in any other primary stop, in any other debate. Now, you tell me, what's the difference between New Hampshire – Iowa, 
Las Vegas, and South Carolina. The difference is the overwhelming number of black voters who are in South Carolina. And Hillary Clinton is pandering to that vote, trying to separate any, not separate, trying to block any potential for Bernie Sanders to have gains. And so she does it relentlessly. And you would think that she did not say the things that she said about President Obama by the way she was riding his coattails. You would think that she was not the person whose campaign started the entire birth of conspiracy. You would think that she did not attack President Obama so vehemently throughout the campaign in 2008, right? And I know that was, I know, that was eight years ago, but just... Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Flower Common Ground with Janice Graham. Thank you for being with us, but we also thank Pascal Robert and Yvette Carnell, our Common Ground Unfiltered Interlocutors, to join us in this discussion about what did happen in Philadelphia. <laughs> Pascal, I know that um, it, it, it was like, it, it, it was like, the, it was, what was it? Uh, I mean, to me, it was a coronation of Hillary with no – listen, listen. What is the major platform of Hillary Clinton's campaign? What are three major – when I think Donald Trump, I say, okay, I mean, they're atrocious, but what are they? Build a wall. Uh, no more Muslim immigration coming in, and we got to end the trade deals. When I thought Bernie Sanders, what did I think? Free uh, state university education. Universal health care for all, we got to regulate the banks. Can you give me three major talking points that are the core of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign that do not include the word or concept, fear Donald Trump? Can you give me three talking points? I'll wait, please. Yvette, what's your three? Because I don't have one. I don't have one. I don't have. I don't have one. I don't have Listen, one thing. If I were married to the Democratic Party, we would be looking for a divorce. But the problem really is to both of you is that we've got a side chick called Jill Stein who only comes around when um, she gets a hard-on. So what are we supposed to do? Where do, where do we develop our, our political capital? Um, it was Bernie Sanders who nominated, who, who set the nomination for Hillary Clinton, and I'm not sure what he is doing, and I'm not sure how we lost this revolution. How did we lose the revolution part of it? Because black people were not vested in the revolution from the beginning. Because John Lewis and Bernie Sanders, I did, not, I did not know Bernie Sanders, but I knew Hillary Clinton while she was a Goldwater girl in 1963. I have known Bernie Sanders for many years. As a matter of fact, Bernie Sanders is only a one of three people who have ever declined being my guest on Our Common Ground. <laughs> and that, that's a whole other story. 
But I have known Bernie Sanders for, for a number of years because I've always been one of the listeners of the Tom Hartman Show. Um, and Tom has featured Bernie Sanders for years and years and years because Bar- Bernie was an independent. Yvette, do you know what happened to the revolution? Well, before but before before I, before I get what get to what happened to the revolution, let me just say I don't even know if the the marriage analogy in terms of Jill Stein and and Hillary Clinton you know works because I don't think you know I don't think we ever really had a marriage you know with with Hillary Clinton I don't I don't think that you know I don't think that you know a marriage implies that at some point probably maybe especially early in the marriage that you were loved. You know, and now you're turning away from that because the person has kind of turned away from you or has grown sour. Like, we were never loved. You know, we were never loved by <laughs> That never happened. There was never any true matrimony. There was no consummation, no anything. So we weren't ever, this mm-hmm. was never a marriage. This was just, we were always the side chick. And now maybe if you're calling Stein a side chick, maybe there's another side chick showing up. And so what's the difference between one side chick and the other one? I don't know. I've never I mean, been a sad chick, ex- except for I, there was all the brouhaha on Thursday about. Politically, um, we all have. Well, well, we well all to, have. To, to make a to 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 do absolute uh, transparent disclosure, last Sunday I joined the Green Party and I will be voting for Jill Stein. And I live in a swing state. I live in the state of Florida. I voted for if the Green Party in two thousand. I'll be voting for her too. I voted for the Green Party in two thousand twelve. Well, she'll definitely and be I on hope, my ballot. And I hope. I will never have to vote for a Democratic presidential or Republican presidential candidate ever again. Well, so some things are going to have to happen in order for that to happen. Well, I think that this is the closest thing we've ever had in my adult life of that happening. When you literally have uh, Bernie Sanders supporters who make up about 43% of the, contention, the convention attendees walking out when Hillary Clinton is nominated, when you have Sanders supporters talking about, you know, screaming while Hillary is there, you know, talking about, you know, uh, you know, their their issues, you know, I was shocked they didn't mm-hmm. say lock her up. I was hoping someone said lock her up while she spoke. That would have been priceless, but they didn't go there. Uh, you know, when you have people as respected who were stellar Sanders. Uh, uh, surrogates like Nina Turner get turned away from the DNC like she was a black person going to a white restaurant during Jim Crow. I would tell you right now, for, for the for the brothers and sisters who are listening, who are Bernie Sanders supporters, loyal Sanders supporters, I applaud you. Uh, I I had certain ideological issues with Sanders dealing with foreign policy that made me hesitant to be a full throttle supporter, but I was kind of behind the scenes, very much cheering along for Bernie Sanders. I did, even in the Haitian community I have in New York, I tried to orchestrate a meeting between Bernie Sanders and the Haitian community when there was a a New York primary. Uh, He actually issued a statement about Hillary Clinton's uh, dealing with Haitian, the Haitian minimum wage and trying to, you know, deny a minimum wage increase as a consequence of of getting in contact with his staff members. So I say that to say that though I was not a completely, totally feeling the burn, I, my assessment as someone who's a student of politics is that Bernie Sanders ran the most important political campaign that we have seen in the United States in my lifetime, including Barack Obama's. 
it was more important than Barack Obama's. And I will tell you why. Because there was absolutely no fundamental change in the political consciousness of the voting public that was a consequence of Barack Obama's candidacy or presidency. You have now college-educated kids, middle-aged folk, who are now talking about political options that were unheard of, seriously in a way where it's not a fairy tale, it is a demand. Why can't we have free university education in state colleges? Why can't we have universal health care? Why can't we have $15 an hour minimum wage? Why can't we end Glass-Steagall? Why can't we ro- um, why can't we regulate the banks? Why can't we talk about socialism? Why is that a bad word? It's not a bad word to me, Bernie. Bernie supporter is a bad word to you, Bernie supporter. I don't have a problem with it. Well, these the are the kind of why, why? Why do we have a black leadership class that is siding with Hillary Clinton instead of Bernie Sanders? Why is Ta-Nehisi Coates so interested in attacking Bernie Sanders for not supporting reparations when neither Obama or Hillary support reparations? Why is it that so many of the black chattering class? on social media or or, or attacking Bernie supporters as if there are no black Bernie supporters? Why are they acting like the media arm of the black leadership class? Why is it that Bernie Sanders, who has the most economically progressive policy of any candidate in my lifetime, can't get uh, 30% of the black vote in Chicago and in the South? Why? Why are black people the only constituency in America that is not revolting from the status quo? These are questions that could have never been asked during the Obama candidacy and have never been asked in a political candidacy in my adult lifetime. This is probably one of the most important candidacies that I've seen, probably going back to 68 at the Chicago Convention. I don't know if you agree with me, Yvette. That's my position. I'd like to hear you ladies' thoughts. You know, well, here's the thing for me. I, I agree with all that, and, and, and you know, the, to set the record, make sure everybody's clear, I, I was a Bernie supporter. Um, and I think, I think in terms of where I stand, that was my last hurrah with the Democratic Party. Like, Bernie was your last chance with me. That's, that's what happened. You know, and going back to the previous analogy, I think we, you know, the, the black voters have been the side chick of the Democratic Party for a long time. And the Jill Stein is just like the person who's on the outside and just comes around every once in a while. It's kind of like, you ready to leave yet? You ready to leave him? You know, that's what we're in. And you think about when I go back to, you know, the, the oh, more than Hillary's speech, which I fell asleep through, through, through about half of it because it was just, I turned was the TV that, off you know, before she came out. <laughs> I, I mean, I, tr- I tried to watch because I was supposed to do an interview about it, and I couldn't. I just couldn't make it through. The the the, the But – Barack Obama's speech was just more telling to me in terms of where the Democratic Party is right now, because there was nothing you could really put your hand on in Hillary's speech from what I saw. But when you look at Barack Obama, there was one thing that he stuck out to me in terms of just how just how slick and kind of slithering he is. He said, you know, you know, for something about, you know, basically for those of you who haven't felt change in the last seven years, we're going to do something for you. And he also, he always uses that language in terms he of black admitted, people you're, you're absolutely right. It was, an, it was a monumental admission. That his whole mantra as a candidate was an absolute failure. Right. He blew it all up. Absolutely. Yep, he blew it right up. 
I mean, it was like a thunderous that he would. And he tried to, be but he so, tried to couch it. Yeah, he that's, tried to couch it in yeah. the language of feeling. Well, if you don't feel, and the same way he does black people. Well, I know I have re, black people have reasons to feel discriminated against. No, these are facts. Like, no, like the, the, the fact is that black people are submitted. The fact is that people in this country, poor people in this country, know that nothing is happening, you know, to, to benefit them, that, 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 that the wealth is at the very top, no matter who you are. And the only person who is speaking to that in terms of being a culture warrior is, is Donald Trump, whether you like him or not. He is speaking truth in terms of these, these, these trade deals and NASA has left you in this position. And you have Barack Obama come on there and say, well, this is a contest of ideas. And it's like, no, you're in a culture war. This is not a contest of ideas. This is about who is going to win this sort of this sort of this sort of culture war. Who, which which ideal, which ideology is going to benefit, mm-hmm. you know, the the bulk of the American people? Yeah. And, and you have you have Trump speaking straight to it, and Barack Obama still talking like some Ivy League professor with this abstract about how you feel. Well, it, because you know that. Uh, you can't have anything more. You know, part of the problem, and I want people to listen to me very, very carefully about this. I don't usually try to um, to tell people how to think or what to think or any of that stuff. I try to give you information to help you think. But here is the deal. Part of the problem with black people who are supporting this Democratic Party is that you are too friggin' lazy. <clears throat> to to gather up the information to test out the criticism that you read about. You would rather drink the Kool-Aid. You would rather ban people from your Facebook page, which I don't give a damn. And you would rather be guided by some fear of some things that you don't understand, but you're going to fear anyway because it's easy for you to be lazy about your own political empowerment and intelligence. That's how it all happened. That's how it all happened. It's how it happened when we didn't take the tiger by the tail in in the first year of Barack Obama's First administration. That's how it all happened. But here's the deal. You all better hit the street. Because I don't see any challenge coming out of our community to this candidate who will most likely win. And she is going to dispose of the, the side chicks and move on with a neoliberal agenda that she hasn't even bothered to tell you about. Um, <clears throat> Yvette and Yvette Carnell of BreakingBrown.com and Pascal Robert of the Black Agenda Report and the Thought Merchant, which is his blog, um, is with us tonight here at Our Common Ground. We're going to go to our phones. We're going to we're going to we're, we're we're real pressed for time. But you know what? If you all pay ten dollars a a month for Our Common Ground, then you know we could maybe pay somebody to get us three more, one more hour or whatever. But whatever, that's a, another call. And don't forget, our close tonight is the full uh, remarks of Reverend William Barber.
612, you're on the air. Thank you for your call. Yeah, good evening, guys. Uh, great show so far. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, thank you. I just wanted to say and that. welcome. Yeah, uh, yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I think with, when it comes to Barack Obama, I think one of the things we kind of overlook is that his motivation is not the black cause at all. His motivation was to advance the liberal progressive movement. He had he had no his whole entire thing had nothing to do with black people at all. We just for it because he had a black face. Because like to your point, sister, when you talked about how people don't investigate and study things out, because people didn't do the necessary research, they just went with him. They didn't they didn't study the fact that this guy was basically a closet communist who was just trying to advance socialism. That's all. Could care less about blacks. And to the to the brother who's talking about. Uh, America going towards liberalism. Well, sir, the reason why that's not going to happen and why Americans are resistant towards socialism because historically it's been proven that the capitalist system in America is far greater than the socialist communist countries that we've seen in the past because capitalism at the end of the day it gives economic opportunity and incentivizes talent, innovation, and ideas. Capitalism has been failing in America for 45 years. Capitalism has been failing in America for 45 years. We have a booming... I'm not a communist, I'm not advocating communism. We've been having a booming bus system running on the unsubsidized debt for 45 years. We went off the gold standard. We we left the Bretton Woods Conference in the 70s, Bretton Woods standards in in the early 70s. We have fiat currency that's not worth a damn, and we basically have finance capital that's being subsidized by quantitative easing, which is basically the Fed just printing money that's worth nothing. So if you think there's a capitalist is worth working work your delusion. There's nothing well, working is, about capitalism the, in this because, country. Because the one thing, you're, again, you're not equating is that America has a yearly volume of the economy of $15 trillion. America has a delusional finance system that's an oligarchy that's based on the Federal Reserve system that just basically finances yeah, I understand because Wall Street. The current, the current financial system, sir, has to do primarily with credit. And a lot of people who just aren't learning about and, how and to get involved with that. The credit? Well, like, obviously, I know it connects the Reserve and the Central and the banks. So I understand that. That's that goes without saying. That's been the case all throughout history. The small group of power broke control majority of the power and wealth. That's always been the case, and that will always be the case. Especially even no, it does when you look at the common. I understand the limitations. the capitalism does not allow you to actually think outside the box. No, no, no. Let me make one quick point. Let me make one quick point with that, sir. The reason why I can say that is look at the history of communism, for example. Well, well, first of all, I'm not advocating communism at all. There are a lot of I know you're not. So I, I don't understand that, why you bring up this 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 uh this uh this uh, Trojan horse of you know, bringing up communism. No, I'm it's not, not a Trojan horse. Never, I'm, let me let me make I'm my not, point. I, why? I, I'll show you. I why. don't know why you even bring up communism. I've never brought up communism at all. Why did you bring it because up? Socialism, so, so socialism, socialism is, communism is not communism. They're two different things. things. Socialism no, it, is actually not, working, has been working all over the world for quite a long no, time. No, it hasn't. Oh, yes, it's it failing has. badly in Europe. No, it's failing badly in put, Europe. The thing that has put socialism in jeopardy in Europe is the fact that the parasitic American capitalism with the subprime mortgage no, in 2008 forced European, the European economy into austerity. No, that's, that's, that's a, a false narrative. The reason no, that's not a false narrative. That's actually Listen, any, no, any no. economic analysis by any. No, I know that, but I can, I, can, I, can, I can easily disprove that the okay. reason socialism is by, by definition Europe. Well, you know, listen, if you choose to be a black person who actually it, listen, likes to be participating listen, in the economic model that's based on your oppression, that's fine. So you can be a black person. No, no, it's not based on oppression. Okay. Let me make a said, quick point You cannot you. have capitalism without racism. So if you want to be a facilitator of your own oppression, that's fine. Okay, let me make a 
live in that false consciousness. But do not sit here and try to act in front of me, tell other black people that capitalism is working for us. There's not a scholar of economics no, it, who it will is, ever say is. that it's capitalism isn't working for, you. for black that's people. That's oh, Really, black people have the highest level of poverty of any other ethnic group in this country. Yeah, that, that's, that's okay. Former we're going to disentangle Hold on, time out. Let me make, let me make a point. We're this, go, this, we're guy, this guy's trying to speak this. for on the behalf of all black No. Okay. My show, I take the mic. We're going to disentangle this by asking the question of what percentage of the black community benefits from capitalism. What percentage? Okay, what percent, well, is it? This country benefit from a, this system of capitalism. Okay, can I can I respond to that? Because this is something we need to understand. Within that, we have to talk about the Asian, and because answer a lot of black people in this country. No, no because answer within the question. that, it's a it's a question, well, because, it's a question of ratio. Well, it is a racial thing, but also you have to factor the educational because for myself and my family and a lot of black people that I know, I'm. We're able to but, you know, it's successful. Less than 21 percent of black people have a college education in this country. We have the smallest that, percentage that's of college educated. That's part of the problem. And that's and part of the problem is because we have a system that's a lot of people. Of the hold on, so let me let me make a point. In this okay, country. well you can't talk over no, each other. No, it's not. It's okay. Let me make a quick point. It's not about exclusion. A lot of people that I mean, I work with a lot of young brothers who are coming out of no, prison no. and trying We're to teach them about the how to. We're going to answer the question. Let me, let me question. answer it then. I'm trying to answer Whatever the Whatever it the man, is, the man, look, capitalism okay, has left ridiculous. 67% of all black people in this country poor. No, ma'am, it's, it's not That's about leaving them. It's about people. It's about understanding, ma'am, because if you learn the system, you can, you can be oh, successful. Here we go. I've done it. And, oh, listen, here we go. It's, okay, i got to go because we're Okay, so because you disagree with me, you're going to be unbelievable. No, no. But, I'm, 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 I'm leaving it because it's not benefiting our audience, and we all know that it is benefiting the of our people. You're just trying to suppress the truth. It's all right, why no, are you the truth that 67 percent of black people. Um, thank you for black. your call. Um, here's the deal. We've got to think about it in the same way that when Michelle Obama was making her really eloquent. Uh, a speech on Wednesday night is that it works for some people, a few people. It works, it works for, for the her. people who are in the best position to benefit from it. Exactly. Or those who will force the benefit. 51% of Americans. I, I mean, I, re, I, res, I, I, I respect that this caller has a system of, I made, uh, that under, has a value that I made it because there's a way that I made it and I got the, you know, Pete's Magical Dragon or whatever. But 67% of the black people in this country do not benefit. They are oppressed by this capitalist system. So if you want to vote for Donald Trump because capitalism has worked for you, have at it and good luck to you and your children. My criticism about M- Michelle Obama on Wednesday night was she was telling us I made it so everybody can make it in this country without ex- extrapolating how she made it. 
except for to wake up in the slave-built house or something. Uh, I, I hate to hang up on people, but he, he wouldn't answer the question, and, and he wasn't making his point, and this is not his talk show, so if you want to not answer questions and not be clear, go get your own talk show or something. Uh, Pascal Robert and Yvette Carnell with us tonight. And I really want to change gears at this point because it is clear, I think, from what Pascal has offered us and presented to us tonight, and Yvette has pretty much highlighted that, and listen very carefully. If you are not working in your community on the issues of education and poverty, housing, education, and the economic opportunities that get created for an economy that supports a thriving black community, you ain't doing nothing. You can go to all the Jack and Jill um, movie nights and, and all the Delta Sigma Theta luncheons that you want. But if you are not challenging the system that oppresses you in the place where you sleep, eat, and go to school, and your children go to school, you're not doing nothing. So you better start your own personal Black Lives Matter block meeting or your own personal vanguard meeting because this system of government, the one in which we live under, the one in which was lauded all week and the week before, is not intended for you. They want you to go away, or they want you to support their economy, the economy that they benefit from. All this nonsense about affirmatively furthering fair housing and affirmative action and EEO and the, and the Supreme Court. What has the Supreme Court done for any black people, Yvette? <laughs> well, 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 I mean, not not only that. Like what you look at, that's in the fear Kool Aid. Well, well, no. What you look at it is when you look at the Supreme Court. Even even when you you know they're appointing, even these Democrats are appointing judges that are further and further to the right. So eventually, what you have is well, I, I would definitely prefer I would prefer the right wing judge as opposed to the far right wing judge. Anyway, like that's not much of a choice. And so what we really have are these conversations where it looks like you know we have a choice and we don't have a choice. Like, and as a black person, you need to understand that you don't have the luxury of saying I'll take the right wing over the far right wing because both of those are deadly toxic to us. So you don't have that kind of leisure to be like I'll take you know I'll take right wing. Right wing is right wing over far right wing. You don't have that leisure. So I, it's back to the same thing that I've been, you know, I've been discussing with some friends, you know, before is that I live in an era where I think now that black people think they white. Like they have conversations like white people have conversations. Like if you're a middle class white person, you might say, well, I'll take, you know, Judge Merrick over, over Scalia. But black people can't do that. Like, like it, it's too, it's too, the needs that we have are too urgent for us to make that kind of compromise. And we don't seem to understand it. We think that we, we, we behave politically like we're upper middle class white people. Yes. We even, our children are even talking, you know that kind of talk where you, you make a statement but it's a question? 
I listen to some of these millennials on, I, I, I don't want to beat up on millennials, but I listen to some of these commentators uh, on on television, and I'm saying, well, where the hell did these black people learn how to talk this way? But I, 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 I absolutely agree. We've We've got to reach back. Pascal, do we have to reach back? Where will we reach back into? Yeah, I think that I think that uh, I mean I'm going to call it this. We need to reach back to the black radical tradition. We need to reach back. We have there is an intellectual tradition, there is a political tradition called the black radical tradition that goes back to it goes back to the Colored Farmers Alliance. It goes back to David Walker's appeal. It goes back to the the, the black labor movement of the early 20th century. It goes back to the African Blood Brotherhood. It goes back to the black the black. Uh, black women who were challenging. It goes back to Lucy uh, Lucy Parks. It goes back to uh, to the sleeping the sleeping car uh, workers. It goes back to all of those movements of black people who are rooting their politics in material challenging of this capitalist system to expand the economic function of this economy in a way that included black people in a way that empowered them. That kind of politics has been absent. Since the end of the civil rights movement, we have been divorced from the black radical tradition. If you take the best of the Panthers, the best of the Boys, the best of Paul Robeson, the the best of Lucy Parsons, the best of uh, of uh, uh, you know the Colored Farmers Alliance, the best of the Black Communists, you know the the best of the Revolutionary Labor Movement of Detroit, you know the best of these movements, well, which are basically movements the the best of the republic of new africa these are all movements that black people today they haven't even heard of mm-hmm. they don't know mm-hmm. that we have a tradition a political tradition yep. of creating economic and, models over 100 years old yeah that 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 and, and, that, and that getting, was fighting the system and getting to to uh Yvette's, uh point um even uh abdul jamal who is fighting, uh, by the way, hepatitis C in prison, um, said last week Donald Trump is is the real face of the ugly American empire. And he wrote, yes, he, he ain't pretty, he ain't black, he ain't a woman, he has a fake tan and orange hair, his rhetoric is cruder, but his ideas are the same. The two major political parties are the abject servants of Wall Street and American empire, Uber Ali's. They each support militarism at home and abroad. They each support the indiscriminate murder of civilians from drones. The black political elites, including Barack Obama, are powerless. They are emblems. They are not the voice of black America. And he, he, he had a tweet last week, and I can't remember what it was, but I retweeted it. Cause I reposted it on my page, and it, I can think about what it, he basically says. If the cost of getting rid of Clintonian neoliberalism is Donald Trump, then so be it. Yes. Right. Thank you, Pascal, because, you know, um, it's hard for me to remember what I went in the kitchen for. But it, it, it really is something that we have to think about. We have to think about, you know, um, I told my daughter this morning when I was talking to her about the Kool-Aid and blah, 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 and she said, Mom, what color is fear Kool-Aid? I said, the color of fear 
uh, Kool-Aid is navy blue. And that's what we need to be thinking about, what kind of Kool-Aid we are drinking to believe that a Hillary Clinton fear-mongering campaign for black people can't be dissected in a way for us to be clear about who we are and our agency as citizens in this country. I mean, Janice, do do we understand the kind of political Stockholm Syndrome black people must be having in 2016 to be seriously having conversations about supporting the Clintons for anything except going to a jail cell? Do we have to run the litany of damage and sheer carnage that was caused by the Clinton presidency? But we have community? people who are saying we don't have an option. And what I am saying is that whether you have an option or not, and I have been saying this for years. You all know I've been saying it. Don't be acting like I haven't been saying it out there because I've been saying it. Whoever is the president of the United States is powerless. So you better figure out your own governing principles and start governing your lives and the lives of your family and your community in that way rather than worrying about what we're going to get from this one and what we're going to get from that one because history tells us we're not getting a damn thing, not even from the black president. And I hate to call him black. He's an African-American. I was going to try and change this topic over to switch over very quickly to talk about Baltimore, Freddie Gray, and the com- the press conference held by the um, uh, prosecutor uh, this week. Can y'all can y'all without getting uh, brain damage switch with me real quick? You think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Without asking Here it is. the most poignant questions, lead detectives that were completely uncooperative and started a counter investigation <coughs> to disprove the state's case by not executing search warrants pertaining to text messages among the police officers involved in the case, creating videos to disprove the state's case without our knowledge, creating notes that were drafted after the case was launched to contradict the medical examiner's conclusion, turning these notes over to defense attorneys months prior to turning them over to the state and yet doing it in the middle of trial. As you can see, whether investigating, interrogating, testifying, cooperating, or even complying with the state, we've all bore witness to an inherent bias that is a direct result of when police police themselves. And despite the challenges of not having an independent investigatory agency to work with us throughout this prosecution, we still are grateful for the opportunity to show the world the reality of the justice system from start to finish. At every step of the way, due process was afforded all of these officers, and the legitimacy of our prosecution efforts were affirmed time and time again. They were affirmed when the court commissioner signed off on the charges that we filed. They were yet again affirmed when we presented our case before a grand jury and secured indictment. 
against all six officers in every charge that we presented to them. Our legal argument. Now, to me, Pascal and Yvette, that is the issues that we ought to be concerned about. And if we don't stop slurping up the fear Kool-Aid, we're never going to get to that. That was what, what, what was happening in the background of a Democratic Party which has the full support of most black people in this country and nobody said a goddamn word. I'm done. Well, well, I mean, I, I just want to say, first off, my the, the best part of that clip for me was the person in the background saying, go ahead, Murray. <laughs> I just want to say that. But, the the you know, I saw a lot of people who were, you know, kind of, you know, kind of nonchalant about uh, Marilyn Mosby's press conference and saying, well, she's a prosecutor and she didn't prosecute the rest of the cases. So this was kind of some, you know, kind of some smoke screen or whatever. And she prosecutes black men every day or whatever. And I, I just think, I just, for my part, I think all of that is just kind of ridiculous. Because here's what I will say. You have a, you know, we have all, we have all complained, and with good reason a lot of the time, about careerist black people who put their career ahead of everything else. And so they don't do things that they need to do that are good for the black community because their career. Now, here you have a, a, a careerist in Marilyn Mosby, a woman who's, you know, on the fast track. And she actually prosecutes, you know, on behalf of Freddie Gray. Now, let's, I, I just like to tell the truth. Let's be politically incorrect. Freddie Gray wasn't the best poster child to prosecute on behalf of. He had a litany of other crimes and things like that. She didn't have to do that as, as somebody who was on the fast track. It's, it's not necessarily that you, that you do that. You're taking a risk with your career. And what she basically does is comes out and she indicts, and she indicts the Baltimore Police Department. She says that, you know, because the judge didn't agree with the theory of the case and because cops basically worked behind her back to sabotage the case, she couldn't bring the, the other case. She, she had no choice but to drop the other cases. So I thought, I thought that was just one of the most phenomenal things I've seen in terms of somebody taking a risk. I'm not just talking about taking a career risk because she can still run for Congress because of what she did and how she stood up and, and, and win. I'm talking taking a real risk. Anytime you go against the police, you take a real risk. Because I don't think, you know, I got a question of whether or not 911 is going to respond to your house real quick if something happens, because if they know that's Marilyn Mosby's address. So I think you're taking a real risk, and I applaud her for what she did. Well, you, you're, you're absolutely right, uh, and in the sense that she is so public and in the sense of a climate where police have decided that they have to wage war against anyone that is cr critical of it, that she was taking uh, a risk. Absolutely. Um, Pascal? Uh, I, I definitely think that she put a lot on the limb, on the line, I should say, and went out on the limb by making those statements. I think that she is very passionate about uh, trying to get justice. Uh, I was disappointed in the fact that she chose not to indict anyone else. But, I mean, listen, I, 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 I agree with Yvette in that the fact that she put, she spoke in such candid, candid form and that she basically was willing to literally admit that the police were acting corrupt in a corrupt fashion in the prosecution of that case uh, demonstrates a certain type of integrity that we've never seen in a black politician before. Yes, but my suspicions absolutely. about possibly using this as a case of showcasing or showboating for future political gain are still are still present, 
and I'm just I'm going to watch with uh, with intent to see where well, this goes. Well, I was very cl- critical of her uh, when she first announced and the way in which she announced the charges. Uh, I thought that she should have stayed out of the camera. That it should have been the charges should have been announced through a press release with a great deal of detail about why the charges were made. And the other is that I thought that she should have waited, that she should have prosecuted the takedown police, the officers, first. Because, and and focus on that is where the injury absolutely happened and it had nothing to do with the paddy wagon. That he was essentially his spine was severed at the takedown, but I was and I was very critical in the way in which she and and I said on these airwaves that I thought that she had overcharged. Well, with all of that, I have a great deal of cynicism about why she would choose now to have this press conference. But when you listen to what she is saying, she is indicting the justice system. She is saying that the court affirmed every motion that they argued. The court affirmed, the magistrate affirmed the charges, that the grand jury affirmed the charges with the evidence provided to it. And essentially she's saying, black people, I mean, you know, I love when she says Freddie Gray did not kill him. We do know that Freddie Gray did not kill himself and that uh, his, his, the M.E. had found um, homicide in the autopsy. Brute, brute force severing of his spine. So uh, I, I, real, I really do like the idea that she, as a prosecutor, is making this indictment. Now, what will happen, my question to, to the two of you, Yvette Cornell of BreakingBrown.com and Pascal Robert of the Black Agenda Report and the Thought Merchant, what will our legal eagles, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, um, and all the other lawyers who many of us paved the way to get a law degree, what will we do with this now in terms of challenging the Department of Justice, challenging the White House and the Congress? I think that the to answer this question is that on a national level, we have to talk about the the nature of policing, and we have to talk about things that I have not talked about, I have not heard discussed. We need to talk about what is the role of the police union in 
the city and the state. Why do the police have a police officer's bill of rights that guarantees them that if they have a violent interaction with a citizen, that within 24 hours they get a union representative, that they do not have to talk to a prosecutor or talk to any state attorney, and they officially get to make a statement with their union rep or lawyer before they get any investigation? Why does that happen yeah. in almost every city in America? Yeah, yeah, a good question. And it's a good why, question who, for us to... Why do we not have a federalized use-of-force matrix that gives a fixed determination of what is considered inappropriate for, for, for police conduct when confronting unarmed citizens? Why are we not talking about changing the use-of-force matrix? Why are we not talking about mandatory independent councils reviewing every time a policeman discharges a weapon and kills yeah. a civilian, and ending the grand jury system for police violence. Why are we talking about not creating special prosecutors? Yeah. Purely. Well, that's admi- certainly- why are we not talking about having administrative trials? In the military, in the United States military, yeah. when you, when you yeah. engage in some kind of uh, violent malfeasance, we have a court-martial. We have a military system that judges accordingly. That's not going to be any more impressed because you're a soldier. Maybe we, okay. we need to have a civilian type, uh, a court Pat martial Powell, system. You're asking some very relevant questions, and we're at the end of our time tonight. I, I I really do think that we do need to do something on our common ground. We have reached out to her uh, in the last uh, days uh, to invite her to come and talk with us about this press conference. Of course, she can't um, talk beyond whatever she talked about in the press conference, but we have reached out. Yvette Carnell, thank you for stopping by. All of our interlocutors are always welcome to stop by. Pascal Robert, thank you so much. I'm sorry we're running out of time. I promised everyone that we would do the uh, barber uh, speech at the end of the program and we need to go next week we hope that we can continue this conversation i have written down all those questions pascal that you just asked thank you all for being with us here at our common ground you know ten dollars a month give us another uh, another hour because we are always running out of time we thank our callers and we thank you and don't forget to check us out on facebook and twitter good evening My brothers and sisters, I come before you tonight as a preacher, the son of a preacher, a preacher immersed in the movement at five years old. I don't come tonight representing any organization, but I come to talk about faith and morality. I'm a preacher and I'm a theologically conservative liberal evangelical biblicist. I know it may sound strange, but I'm a conservative because I work to conserve a divine tradition that teaches us to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. I've had the privilege of traveling the country with the Reverend Dr. James Forbes and Reverend Dr. Tracy Blackman and Sister Simone Campbell, as we are working together in the revival and calling for a moral revolution of values. And as we travel the country and we see some things, that's why I'm so concerned about those that say so much 
about what God says so little while saying so little about what God says so much. So, in my heart, I'm troubled and I'm worried by the way faith is cynically used by some to serve hate, fear, racism, and greed. We need to heed the voice of the scriptures. We need to listen to the ancient chorus in which deep calls unto deep. The prophet Isaiah cries out, What I'm interested in seeing you doing, says the Lord, as a nation is, pay people what they deserve. Share your food with the hungry. Do this, and then your nation shall be called a repairer of the breach. Jesus, Jesus, a brown-skinned Palestinian Jew, called us, called us to preach good news to the poor, the broken, and the bruised, and all those who were made to feel unaccepted. Our Constitution calls us to commit our government to establish justice, to promote the general welfare, to provide for the common defense, and to ensure domestic tranquility. Now, to be true, we have never lived this vision perfectly, but this ought to be the goal at the heart of our democracy. And when religion is used to camouflage meanness, we know that we have a heart problem in America. There, there have always been forces that wanted to harden, even stop the heart of our democracy. But there have also always been people who stood together to stir what Sister Dorothy Day called a revolution of the heart and what Dr. King called a radical revolution of values. I say to you tonight that some issues are not left versus right or liberal versus conservative. They are right versus wrong. We need, we need to embrace our deepest moral values and push for a revival of the heart of our democracy. When we fight to reinstate the power of the Voting Rights Act and we break the interposition and nullification of the current Congress, we in the South especially know that when we do that, we are reviving the heart of our democracy. When we fight for 15 and a union and universal health care, and public education, and immigrant rights, and LGBTQT rights, we are reviving the heart of our democracy. When, when we develop tax and trade policies that no longer funnel our prosperity to the wealthy few, we are reviving the heart of our democracy. When we hear the legitimate discontent of Black Lives Matter, and we come together to renew justice in our criminal justice system. We are embracing our deepest moral values and reviving the heart of our democracy. When, when we love the Jewish child and the Palestinian child, the Muslim and the Christian and the Hindu and the Buddhist, and those who have no faith, but they love this nation. We are reviving the heart of our democracy. When we fight for peace, and when we resist the proliferation 
of military-style weapons on our streets. And when we stand against the anti-democratic stronghold of the NRA, we are reviving the heart of our democracy. In times like these, we have to make some decisions. And I might not normally be here as a preacher and an individual, but when I hear Hillary's voices and positions, I hear and I know that she is working to embrace our deepest moral values, and we should embrace her. But let me be clear. Let me be clear that she nor any person can do it alone. The watchword of this democracy and the watchword of faith is we. The heart, the heart of our democracy is on the line this November and beyond. Now, my friends, they tell me that when the heart is in danger, somebody has to call an emergency code, and somebody with a good heart will bring a defibrillator to work on a bad heart, because it's possible to shock a bad heart and revive the pulse. In this season, when some want to harden and stop the heart of our democracy, we are being called, like our foremothers and fathers, to be the moral defibrillators of our time. We, we, must, we must shock this nation with the power of love. We must shock this nation with the power of mercy. We must shock this nation and fight for justice for all. We can't give up on the heart of our democracy, not now, not ever. And so, and so I stop by here tonight to ask, is there a heart in this house? Is there a heart in America? Is there somebody that has a heart for the poor and a heart for the vulnerable? Then stand up, vote together, organize together, fight for the heart of this nation. And while you're fighting, Sing that old hymn, revive us again, fill each heart with thy love. May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. Hallelujah. Find the glory. And so, and so I stop by here tonight to ask, is there a heart in this house? The heart of our democracy is on the line this November and beyond. Now... My friends, they tell me that when the heart is in danger, somebody has to call an emergency code. And somebody with a good heart will bring a defibrillator to work on a bad heart. Because it's possible to shock a bad heart and revive the pulse. In this season, when some want to harden and stop the heart of our democracy. We are being called, like our foremothers and fathers, to be the moral defibrillators of our time. We must shock this nation with the power of love. We must shock this nation with the power of mercy. We must shock this nation 
and fight for justice for all. Where's my God and where's my money? Unreal values is a crass distortion. Unwed mothers need abortion. Kind of brings to my old young king cut. He did it now by making real compared to what? Building either a new party or a new movement that can hold the Democratic Party accountable or provide a meaningful alternative. Um, but I could not be more thrilled um, with the movement that is arising um, all over this country to support the creation of a real democracy in the United States. Um, you know, I think Bernie Sanders is absolutely right to call for a political revolution. Uh, we don't have a real democracy today. Our politicians are, you know, pretending to serve two masters, the people who elect them and then the people who fund them. And then Clinton be selected as the nominee of the I wake up every morning in a house that was built by slaves. Soy Americana. He's trying to tell us he cares about the middle class. Give me a break. That's a bunch of malarkey. This race is going to be won on the ground. And it's going to be won in Colorado and in Iowa and North Carolina and Michigan and Florida and Pennsylvania. And then we're going to the White House. Yeah! We have important work ahead of us. Work that will determine the future of our country. Are you ready? put the biggest crack in that glass ceiling yet. Thanks to you and to everyone who's fought so hard to make this possible. And if there are any little girls out there who stayed up late to watch, let me just say, I may become the first woman president, but one of you is next. Thank you all. I can't wait to join you. I think the vote can only be used as a tool of organization. We can only use the vote to organize our people. Now, to really believe that we can put someone in office and that these people would be responsive to our needs, it's naive, politically naive. Because even if one of the black candidates who ran for office were to take the office of president, then black people must be prepared to fight against that person. Why? Because, you see, the system mandates the action of the individual. The individual does not determine how this country will function. This country works off the military-industrial complex, which means that it's profitable to wage war. And unless you, you know, devise another plan, another scheme to sustain, uh, to boost this economy, then it's going to be necessary to wage war, whether you know a black individual is in, is in office or a white individual is in office. Well, we're talking about a complete uh, a change in. Everything just is highly probable. And unfortunately, so was the outcome.
And while to this day we stand by the decisions, the legal theories, the charges and assertions set forth in the statement of probable cause and during these proceedings, as officers of the court, we must respect the verdict rendered by the judge regarding the ultimate culpability of the adjudicated officers involving Freddie Gray's death as final. No matter how much we may disagree with this ruling, we do not believe that Freddie Gray killed himself. We, we stand by the medical examiner's determination that Freddie Gray's death was a homicide. However, after much thought and prayer, it has become clear to me that without being able to work with an independent investigatory agency from the very start, without having a say in the election of whether our cases proceed in front of a judge or a jury, without communal oversight of policing in this community, without real substantive reform to the current criminal justice system, we could try this case a hundred times in cases just like it, and we would still end up with the same result. Accordingly, I have decided not to proceed on the cases against Officer Garrett, Sergeant Alicia White, or to re-litigate the case against William Porter. As a mother, as a mother, the decision not to proceed on these trials, on the remaining trials, is agonizing. However, as a chief prosecutor elected by the citizens of Baltimore, I must consider the dismal likelihood of conviction at this point. The judicial economy is proceeding further, and the divisive impact that continues continuing this prosecution could potentially have on our community. What I've ultimately learned throughout this arduous process is that although no small task, justice is always worth the price paid for its pursuit. Let's not get crazy. Can we please just vote now? You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time.
la fedeltà la ragione del mio canto che resistere non può ad un così dolce pianto che mutò
I've been thinking about it, but it's so hard to figure out. Better please. But love is something that the whole round world ought to, they ought to know about. I'ma tell the world, but oh, baby. Baby, baby, baby.
and thank you for being with us. Good night.